Please pray as I pray for us the prayer for illumination. God, by the guidance of your Holy Spirit, open our minds and our ears and lead us into your truth. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Perhaps you want to follow along in the Pew Bible or the one you brought from home, Acts chapter 1, and the verses I'll tell you in a minute. Start with verse 12. This particular passage is after Jesus' ascension. Please attend the reading of Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill they call the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit broke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong his body burst open and all of his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this with reason. So they call that field in their language Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For as Peter said, it is written in the book of Palms, the Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Here ends the reading from Acts. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Minna. Well, it's June, and that means the end of another school year. We have honored our high school graduates today, and uh, that reminds us that students and teachers are 
having their schedules filled this month with end-of-year things like award banquets and concert performances and commencement exercises and final exams. And this school year, here at North Creek, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and we also are ending the year here in June. And so it's time for the final exam. And so if you would take out your number two pencil, we will proceed. Are you ready? Okay. Seriously, though, we are wrapping up this year's focus by looking at Luke's wrap-up material that takes us into his second volume. His first volume is the Gospel of Luke. His second volume is the book of Acts. And so to get a a kind of a full picture of Luke's Gospel, you have to go into at least chapter 2 of Acts. Here we're in chapter 1. Now, next week is Pentecost, and we've timed this series so that we will celebrate, along with the church year, the celebration of Pentecost next Sunday while we read the text that describes the events that we will commemorate on that day. Exciting. If you want to be traditional, wear red, the color of Pentecost, next week. But today we look at Acts chapter 1. After Jesus' ascension but before the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This text has to do with the 12 disciples who are now called the apostles, the sent ones. Luke's gospel, however, left a few unanswered questions that he's picking up here. First is this, what happened to Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus? Sparing a repeat reading of the graphically described demise of Judas... Suffice it to say, spoiler alert, he's not coming back. (laughs) But there's also a logical follow-up to this Judas question. What does his absence from the original 12 mean for the apostles' ongoing mission? What appears at first glance to be a simple proposition of replacing someone on the team who crashed and burned it turns out to be a deeper question of divine purpose and its fulfillment in human community. We've encountered the concept of the fulfillment of God's divine purposes throughout our study of Luke. It drove Luke to be a person of purpose in writing his gospel. Remember back to the beginning when we read his purpose statement in the first four verses of chapter 1. Reading here. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. You see, the fulfillment of God's purposes in Jesus led Luke to be a person of purpose, to write down, to investigate the truth of this revelation. And then in chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, Jesus, the main character of this account, stands up in the Nazareth synagogue, picks up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and declares his purpose by reading these words aloud, saying that they are being fulfilled as people hear them. Real time. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now here in Acts chapter 1, Peter emerges as the voice of leadership in the community of apostles. And in verse 16 declares that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. You see, he's been listening carefully to Jesus, who's been teaching after his resurrection, learning from him that what is happening in this is an expression of divine purpose, the fulfillment of God's plan for saving the world. You might recall a few weeks ago, we read Luke 24, 44, where the resurrected Jesus says these words to his disciples, including Peter. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. And here in chapter 1, we learn that one of the first things the apostles did after Jesus' ascension was to replace Judas so that there would be 12 apostles moving forward. And in a manner that seems a little bit interesting, but was customary to the times, they nominated two people, Joseph, also known as Barsabbas, a.k.a. Justice, three names, and then Matthias. After praying for God to show them the way, they cast lots Now, the lots were cast to discover God's choice. They were trusting in God to to express this through this game of chance. We don't do that very often in this day and age, but actually, true story, this is the way that I was selected to be a General Assembly commissioner in 2004. Eric, were you at that meeting? No, I wasn't. I I remember that. Yeah, yeah. It was was quite a surprise. Uh, I guess I'm going to General Assembly. God's will. Well, the lot was cast, and the lot fell to Matthias. And with him on board, the twelve were complete, ready for what came next. Matthias is not mentioned in the Bible again. A fact which begs the question, why is he even mentioned here? And this question has an answer that may please those diehard Seahawks fans that we found out about earlier in the service. Matthias is important because he's the 12th man. (laughs) Serious. This is is biblical theology, folks. The number 12, I can tell this sermon is going to go kind of crazy for a few more minutes. The number 12 is essential to God's divine purpose. (laughs) Go Hawks. That's like amen in Seahawks talk, right? But that number is perhaps the most significant numerical symbol in the Bible. It stands for the nation, the people of Israel. This group of people who are comprised of 12 tribes. These are the people through whom God has chosen to bless the whole earth. And it hasn't been an accident that Jesus called 12 followers into his inner circle of disciples. Judas's failure has the potential to put God's plan in jeopardy. Certainly, 11 apostles would be able to do some pretty amazing work for God's kingdom. 
but they would eventually fall short of moving forward God's plan for fully restoring Israel. Twelve tribes. Through the selection of Matthias, God is working to redeem the human failures of Christ's followers and keep his kingdom plan on track. And haven't we learned this through the history of the church? Time and time again, we have learned, God's people have learned, that in spite of human failure, the purposes of our faithful God continue ahead. Well, what can we learn from Matthias, a person who shines only in this one appearance on the biblical stage? Matthias puts himself in the position for his one shining moment through consistent dedication without public recognition, a characteristic worthy of emulation in the Christian life. It turns out from this text, we learn a lot more about Matthias than first meets the eye. Looking closely at the requirements for Judas' replacement in verses 21 and 22, we find that he has been with Jesus and the original 12 disciples the whole time from the very beginning. Now, the magnitude of this statement, let it sink in. The magnitude is mind-blowing. It means that in this journey through the Gospel of Luke, Every time we read about Jesus doing something in ministry, when Jesus healed, when he fed the hungry, when he taught in parables parables about the kingdom of God, Matthias was there. Matthias was there. All through the gospel account. There were always those names. For some of us, we learned new things. We learned that there were a number of women who followed Jesus around. Some of them are named in the Gospel of Luke. So it wasn't just the 12, it was also them. And then he sent out 72 in Luke 10. Well, there were at least 72 then. And here we find out that there were two people in particular who are named who were with Jesus the whole time from the very beginning. Matthias may very well have been one of the 72 that Jesus sent out to serve. For that matter, he may have been one of the eyewitnesses that Luke interviewed for his orderly and accurate account. But perhaps most importantly, he was there for the resurrection of Jesus, something that his tragic predecessor could not claim. As a witness of Jesus rising from the dead, he would offer his testimony of this truth to fuel of movement that moved forward and turned the world upside down. I want you to picture a graduation ceremony. Going to a graduation ceremony might be very soon in your future. Notice those few very important people up on the stage. But now turn your gaze to the floor and the far greater numbers in this crowd of graduates sitting before them. The full picture of the people involved isn't limited to those who get the spotlight. It includes large numbers of people who don't get much public recognition but are there because of their consistent dedication. If you took a tour 
of a famous historic university. Let's take Oxford University in England, the oldest English-speaking university in the world. On that tour, you will hear the tour guide mention all of the names of the great people and notable figures who studied there. But that number never goes beyond 20 or 30 when you're on that tour. But that number pales in comparison to the hundreds of thousands who have studied in those halls through the years. You see, there is power and significance in consistent dedication. Matthias knew Jesus and stayed with the movement without being a star. Most Christians have a lot in common with him in this respect. The term conspicuous consumption was coined by the sociologist Thorsten Veblen at the turn of the 19th century to describe a kind of interesting industrial age phenomenon, and that is people purchasing luxury goods and displaying them publicly to gain higher status. To be a conspicuous consumer is all about buying what you buy in order to be seen and recognized. How much of life in our society is about being conspicuous, doing things to be seen by others? In a contrary way to this social reality, being a person of purpose who lives with consistent dedication is often about inconspicuous commitment. It's about common faithfulness without fanfare. It's living every day with purpose, always prepared for when it may be your time to shine. In sports, we honor the great stars, don't we? We follow their statistics, wear their jerseys, make plans to see them in person, and are thrilled by that. But think of how important it is to the sport that there are people who passionately and faithfully pursue their sport outside of the limelight. There's always someone ready when the call comes from the big leagues. Ready even if the call never comes. Have you ever seen a professional sport take out an ad in the local newspaper looking for players? It may have happened once or twice, but it's not a common occurrence because there are always players who inconspicuously are living with purpose. They're honing their skills. They're pursuing their passion. Keeping in shape, honing their craft. Now, you and I may never be called up to the next level, but here's the thing. If you don't live a life of purpose, you won't be ready when the call comes. It's fascinating to think of the impact of the inconspicuous commitment of people like Matthias. Think of all the great people in history whose well-known names fill textbooks. And then think 
of the far greater number, the untold millions who make their mark by living faithful, purposeful lives. On London's Trafalgar Square, you will find the National Portrait Gallery, displaying oil-painted portraits of many of the major players in British history, queens and kings, statesmen and military leaders, composers and writers. Most were painted live, with a portrait painter sitting in the same room with the subject. And so they are remarkably accurate. It's like being in the same room with these great historical figures. And by the impeccable quality and the massive size, some of them 12, 14, 16 feet high, it's clear that you not only had to be a somebody to have your portrait in that gallery, you actually had to be quite wealthy at the time in order to afford such an honor. And to be honest, touring the, gal- the gallery comes off a little bit like lifestyles of the rich and famous. But that's not the full story of British history. And there's a tiny glowing reminder in a corner of one of those massive galleries. There on a simple stand about four feet high, enclosed in glass, is a small, line-drawn portrait that would fit in the palm of your hand. It is so delicate that the small light in the display goes on only for two seconds at a time and then darkens again for a while so that the delicate line and ink will not be deteriorated by the light. It would be so easy to miss in the midst of these massive portraits surrounding it. But it would be your loss because this, in the palm of your hand, under glass, only seen two seconds at a time with a burst of light, is the only known portrait made of Jane Austen during her lifetime, drawn by her sister Cassandra. Why is Jane Austen's portrait so small and insignificant in that place? It's because she was not a celebrity during her lifetime. Not all of her famous books were published while she lived. Those that were published were done so anonymously, as many women authors did because of the legal disadvantages that women had in those days. And yet she faithfully pursued her purpose. And it's because of her inconspicuous commitment that we can enjoy her six full-length novels, books that have rarely been out of print for 200 years. Jane Austen really did never know of her success during her lifetime and represents the many who pursue their calling faithfully and make this world a better place. Being a person of purpose, you'll add your name to the hidden faithful of history. And in relation to living out your faith in Christ, you'll be the hidden faithful of church history. You may not have heard much about Matthias before today, but he's part of this group. As is another person that I had never heard of until this last week. A man named Garrison Frazier. 
If you Google his name, you'll find something, but you won't find a lot of portraits or images under his name. But he shines in a vivid and crucial moment in American history. The term 40 acres and a mule refers to General William T. Sherman's Special Field Order 15 at the end of the Civil War, one of the first acts of reconstruction following slavery in the South. The U.S. government set aside 40-acre plots of land for black families to settle and offered them mules that had been used by the army, 40 acres and a mule. But this action that often is attributed to Sherman as his idea was actually the idea of a group of Jesus' disciples. General Sherman and Secretary of War Stanton sought the input of local black ministers and arranged a meeting with them on the second floor of Charles Green's mansion on Savannah's Macon Street. Their chosen spokesman was a Baptist minister, Garrison Frazier. He was 67 years old at the time. He'd been in ministry as a pastor 35 years, even though it was only eight years prior that he had purchased freedom for himself and his wife at the cost of what in today's money would be $31,000. He was asked by these two great men to state in what manner you think you can take care of yourselves, speaking of the black community, and how can you best assist the government in maintaining your freedom? And he answered in this way, and this is from a transcript, known and treasured to history. The way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land and turn it and till it by our own labor. And we can soon maintain ourselves and have something to spare. We want to be placed on land until we are able to buy it and make it our own. His idea influenced General Sherman's order, and within six months, 40,000 freedmen had settled on 400,000 acres of what was called Sherman's land. The fact that President Andrew Johnson overturned the order later that year without effectively addressing the issue doesn't diminish this inconspicuous commitment of Garrison Frazier that made him ready to shine when it was his time. In conclusion, there is much to be said for studying and appreciating the words and actions of the major players in Scripture. We can't avoid it, and we'd be spiritually impoverished if we tried. But we also lose out when we don't recognize the inconspicuous commitment of people like Matthias, who didn't get much of an enduring spotlight, because that's the kind of Christian life most people have lived And it's the kind of Christian life that most of us are living right now. Like Matthias, be a person of purpose. Rather than pursuing popularity, make consistent dedication your aim. Live your faith with inconspicuous commitment and take your place in the hidden history of those who participate in the ongoing fulfillment of God's divine plan of salvation through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you do, you may be encouraged by the lyrics in the third verse of the classic African-American spiritual, There is a Balm in Gilead. If you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can share the love of Jesus who died to save us all. Amen.